tonight to tell you the truth, because I've been following up something, and the most of you will remember the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhead, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now, that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I must have been now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, I hope that you're doing well. We've uh, we've had some nice weather here, i.e. we've had a good bit of rain over the last few days, which has been excellent. This has brought the temperature down, it's kicked some of the humidity out of the air, and it's been nice to be able to actually sleep at night. So it's been great. Uh, as I say, we usually get a little bit of a humid kick leading up to Christmas. It's really nice that we had a few days worth of rain to kind of knock it out of the air. Again, for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, I know it's been quite cold in a lot of places, so hang in there. I know it's the darkest time of the year for you, as it's the lightest time of the year for us here. I mean, it gets light here now about 5, 5.30 a.m., so... Yeah, um, I remember those days getting up early for work uh, and it already being light out. So what have I been up to? Well, besides working on the show, just a bit of relaxing, catching up on some TV and quite a bit of gaming, which has been good. Planning a few things behind the scenes. Like I say, I, I want to make December a fairly busy month, so I got quite a few things going on, editing and whatnot. Got a few more interviews to try and tie up. And especially just getting through these News of the Damned articles. So again, thanks so much, Trey and Jeff in Wisconsin, for sending me some stories. They won't be in this episode, but I'm going to cover some more of Trey's, and I'm going to cover the one you sent me, Jeff, in the upcoming News of the Damned episode for over the weekend. So I do hope, like I say, you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. As for things around here, as far as it goes with the holidays, just pretty simple pretty uh not not a whole lot going on uh for me like i say a lot of the traditional holidays are about having that time with family and most of my family is long gone passed on years ago so um it's not one of those cry for me argentina moments it's just a matter of uh, i celebrate it more in my heart than uh by decorating a christmas tree and all that kind of stuff it's much more about memories uh there are traditional things that i do uh, usually I will have, uh, again, this is just something that I added. This wasn't a traditional family thing, but I tend to have a nice big breakfast on, on Christmas Eve. So full hot breakfast, sausage, bacon, and eggs and all that. Don't tell the doctor. And then um, obviously have a nice meal on Christmas. Aside from that, typical list of you would do, probably presents and that. I got to get uh, got to get a few treats for William still. For uh, his Christmas, he's getting quite old now. He's he's getting white hair all over. So uh got to make the most of the time that I've got with him. So that's about it, folks. We'll keep this brief because I want to get into the news of the damn. And then, obviously, we got the second half of the excellent interview I had with Chaz of the Dead. And I'm sure that you'll enjoy that. 
again, if you want to support the program, the best way you can support the program is basically tell others, word of mouth, tell others, hey, there's this program, I think it's pretty good, I think the guy's not completely insane, and uh, go and uh, check out his podcast, that's one way you can do it. You can go and follow and like anything on the social media, again, Instagram and Facebook is where I spend most of my time when I'm on social media. And aside from that, of course, you can go and like and rate the show on your podcast platform of choice. Some don't have that feature, but a lot of them have an option where you can give it four stars, five stars, whatever it is you want to you give it. Uh, you can just go on there and post. So aside from that, folks, I do hope that you have a great rest of your week. Time to get into the news of the damned, and then we'll get into our interview with Chaz. So, for those of you who don't know what the news of the damned is, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort, and he was interested in all of the things that we're interested in. Everything from cryptids and sea monsters, to lights in the sky, people disappearing, strange things falling from the sky, ancient mysteries. All of these things were Charles Fort's passion. And he gathered 40 or 50 or 60,000 handwritten index card notes on the subjects from periodicals all over the world, from newspapers and magazines. And then he later published a series of four books. And in the books, he would publish these accounts, give a little bit of his thoughts on it, and then also ask some questions for us, the readers, to answer ourselves. While Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science, as damn data. Therefore, every time we cover the news on the Paranormal Sun, it is known as the news, the news of the, the So the first one we've got here is is a bit of a laugher and a bit of a tie-in with Trey sending me that story about Area 51. And you know I've covered over the Area 51, the Storm Area 51 stuff before. So I couldn't believe this one when I saw it, but it did make me have a good chuckle. Um, he won't be chuckling now. It says, Man in clown mask attempts to steal jet to fly to Area 51 to see aliens. Yes, you heard that right. Man in clown mask attempts to steal jet to fly to Area 51 to see aliens. And this is from coasttocoastam.com. A Las Vegas man is in considerable legal trouble. Really? Following a wild incident wherein he breached an airport security perimeter by way of a limousine and then donned a clown mask while attempting to commandeer a jet for a trip to Area 51 to see aliens. The multi-layered misadventure reportedly unfolded last Wednesday evening when Matthew Hancock allegedly drove a limo through two metal fences surrounding the city's McCarran International Airport. After pulling up alongside a jet on the tarmac, authorities say the man stepped out of his vehicle, put on a clown mask, and informed workers on the aircraft that he intended to blow this place up with a bomb. According to police, Hancock then inexplicably got back inside the limousine and began to drive away while the understandably alarmed airport personnel fled the scene. Fortunately, there was no standoff nor any altercation when cops caught up with the vehicle as the man is said to have surrendered immediately. 
it was then that things took an even stranger turn, when Hancock reportedly revealed to police his reasoning for the brazen attempt. After telling them there was a bomb in his vehicle, the man explained that he wanted to steal a jet and then somehow use it to journey to Area 51 to look at aliens. <laughs> Cops subsequently searched Hancock's limousine and found a crude-looking fake bomb made out of what appeared to be an oxygen tank, a fire extinguisher, and various metal objects all strung together with Christmas lights. As one might imagine, the man was promptly arrested and has been charged with multiple crimes, including threatening an act of terrorism. In an appropriately bizarre coda to the entire tale, since being taken into custody, it has been alleged that Hancock phoned a well-known Las Vegas attorney approximately eight times on the day of the incident. During the calls, he is said to have dubbed himself the Chosen One and claimed that he had put some kind of bomb in the lawyer's car. Well, the one thing we're going to say there is at least um, he used Christmas lights, so he was being festive. But uh, yeah, folks, sometimes you get people like this that, from all uh, outward indications, uh, have got mental issues. And uh, I do hope he gets the help he needs. But uh, yeah, folks, you can't make this kind of stuff up. This is why we do the news of the dam. Um <laughs> And as always, there's a link in the show notes if you want to go and check out that article. Okay, so the next one has got to tie into the show that I did with Lisa, uh, Lisa, the real estate agent in North Carolina and chapter president, because in that we covered what are the laws around haunted houses in Japan. Well, here we go. What do you know from Coast to Coast uh, AM? Again, this one is an article that says Japanese Prime Minister moves into purportedly haunted official residence. Japan's newest prime minister has become the first person in nearly a decade to take up residence in a century-old and allegedly haunted mansion that is supposed to officially serve as the country's version of the White House. Fumio Kishida, uh, Kishida reportedly moved into the palatial estate this past weekend and something of a break from recent tradition, as over the past nine years, his two predecessors had each opted for alternative accommodations. Despite pro providing prosaic explanations for why they opted not to live in the official residence, many theorized that the real reason was because the ghost had rumored, because of the ghost that rumored to lurk within its halls. Specifically, it is believed that the mansion may be home to the spirit of former Prime Minister uh, in in Inukai Tsuyoshi, who was assassinated in the residence in 1932, and apologies, apologies to anyone listening who speaks Japanese if I butcher any of this, or various individuals who perished at the estate during a coup attempt four years later. Over the last few decades, the site has earned something of a spooky reputation, in large part thanks to tales passed down from one occupant to the next, and then subsequently reported in the press. Most notably, former Prime Minister Yashiro Mori is said to have actually seen a ghost in the mansion, and former First Lady Yasuko Hata once revealed to reporters that I was told there are many people clad in military uniforms in the garden. Amazingly, the site was even subjected to an exorcism in 2005 in an attempt to eradicate any sinister spirits that might call the palace home. However, it would seem that the new Prime Minister, Kushida, harbors no fears of such ghosts, as he took up residence in the mansion over the weekend. After spending his first night in the estate, Curious reporters asked him about the experience, and he informed them that I slept soundly. As for if he had seen the mansion's infamous ghost, Kushida simply replied, I haven't seen any yet. That said, should 
Should he wind up quickly moving out of the mansion in the not-too-distant future, it just may be because the spirits were unhappy about having to share their home again after almost a decade of peace and quiet. So yeah, again, folks, um, very interesting story. And again, it just goes to show how people in other countries, as opposed to the U.S. or Europe or even here, uh, basically areas of the world that have been settled by Western civilization, so to speak, how these other cultures look at ghosts. And often they look at it in a pragmatic manner. It just goes back to that old question of what are ghosts, as me and Lionel Fanthorpe talked about on the show and many other people have. Are ghosts simply a recording of something that happened in the past? Are ghosts sentient beings? Are they spirits that are trapped on Earth? If so, maybe they are thinking they're alive and they're wondering, who are these people in my house? Who knows? But it is an interesting story nonetheless. And my friend Mark over at the Zen Sandwich podcast who does an excellent show, and Mark lives in Japan, has for many years. Uh, anytime I have a Japanese article like this, I make sure to post it in his Facebook group. So I'll be posting that, and uh, if anyone from Zen Sandwich hears this, uh, I, tap my cap. I tip my cap to you. This is a shout-out to the Zen Dog Life Facebook group. Right, so I thought I would finish off the news of the dam today with something positive, okay? So <laughs> oftentimes on the show... Some of the stuff we cover, especially of the apocalyptic nature, is pretty doom and gloom. So this one, the headline anyway, struck me as being something a little more positive. Now this is from ARSTechnica.com. And it says, don't, don't look up is fiction. Here's the real science of that doomsday scenario. ARS chats with Amy Mainzer about why we don't need comet and asteroid insurance just yet. So I haven't heard of this show, but obviously it might be a movie. But it's got Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, so it's obviously um, big budget, whatever it is. So it says two low-level astronomers discover a planet-killer comet hurtling towards Earth but struggle to get anyone to pay attention in Don't Look Up, a new satirical sci-fi from Netflix. Directed by Adam McKay, The Big Short, it's, it's a mostly amusing, star-studded connection that ably skewers science denial and cynical politicking even in the face of almost certain annihilation. Now, I like that. That is right up my alley. <laughs> science denial and cynical politicking. Two things I'm always banging on about. So it says, per the film's official synopsis, Kate Dibiaski, Jennifer Lawrence, an astronomy grad student and her professor, Dr. Randall Mindy, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio make an astounding discovery of a comet orbiting within the solar system. The problem? It's on a direct collision course with Earth. The other problem? No one really seems to care. Turns out warning mankind about a planet killer the size of Mount Everest is an inconvenient fact to navigate. With the help of Dr. Oglethorpe, Rob Morgan, Kate and Randall embark on a media tour that takes them from the office of an indifferent president, Orlean, Meryl Streep, and her... Uh, sycophantic staff or sorry sycophantic son and chief of staff jason jonah hill to the airwaves of the daily rip an upbeat morning show hosted by brie kate blanchett and jack tyler perry with only six months until the comet makes impact managing the 24-hour news cycle and gaining the attention of social media obsessed public before it's too late proves shockingly comical what will it take to get the world to just look up the cast also includes mark rylance Timothy Chalamet, Kid Kid Cudi, 
Ariana Grande, Ron Perlman, Michael Chiklis, Robert Joy, Sarah Silverman, Chris Evans, Himesh Patel, Paul Gillifoyle, and, and Liv Schreiber. Well, there's a lot of well-known people there. Near-Earth objects do exist. We know that. I've covered it many times. And astronomers track them diligently. Even though the real-world likelihood of a planet-killing comet or asteroid collided with Earth and van is vanishingly small. Naturally, when McKay needed scientific input for his doomsday scenario, he turned to NASA. The space ag agency recommended Amy Mainzer, an astronomer at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. Mainzer studies asteroids and planets, or asteroids and comets for a living, particularly those whose orbits might pass close to Earth, and is the principal investigator for both the NEOWISE project and the Near Earth Object Surveyor Space Telescope mission. R sat down with Mainzer to learn more. Now, we'll see how long this is, uh, but we might give it a bit of a glance over. We'll just see here. Ars Technica, is there a real-life inspiration for the comet that threatens humanity in the film? Amy Mainzer, this is absolutely a science fiction movie. One of the great things about science fiction is that it lets us explore what-if scenarios. The comet in this story is really an allegory for other types of disasters that people face, both natural and human-caused. It's a broader allegory of the role of science in society and whether we make decisions as a society based on science or not. In real life, we don't know of anything that's headed our way that poses any sort of imminent impact threat. However, I did loosely base the comet on Comet Neowise, which we discovered last year. We do see these long-period comets that come from other parts of the solar system. They pop up without a lot of warning because they move with incredible velocities relative to the Earth. Fortunately for us, space is really, really big, so most of the time there's absolutely no chance of an impact whatsoever. Ars Technica, scientifically, what is the difference between a comet and an asteroid? Composition-wise, we now think that asteroids and comets represent a spectrum rather than being two completely different categories. And, hey, newsflash, in school, and we were always taught that they are two different categories. Asteroids are rockier with less ice on their surfaces. We think they formed in the warmer parts of the inner solar system. So they've been exposed to more sunlight, and that tends to fry any ice off the surface. On the other end of the extreme, you have comets, which are generally thought to have formed in the more distant parts of the solar system. So they are more icy sulfides, or so more icy surfaces. So we were always taught, think a comet. But there's also a whole new class of objects that look more like look like normal asteroids in terms of orbits. They just go around the sun peacefully between Mars and Jupiter. They've been there for forever and will probably stay there forever. Sometimes they sprout tails like a comet, and sometimes we see near-Earth objects. They have wacky comet-like orbits, but they show no signs of activity at all. They never spout a tail. In terms of their dynamics, these objects can be very different. The asteroids are very, are, sorry, are the most hazardous with the greatest chance of intersecting with Earth because they tend to have Earth-like orbits. Their relative velocities are lower than comets, but they still travel at tens of thousands of miles an hour. That's why a tiny little piece of sand can make a brilliant light in the night sky. It's just moving so fast. Comets move even faster. With Comet Neowise, we first discovered it in March, and by July, it had already made its closest pass to the sun. Ars Technica Just how close are we talking about? Amy Mainzer it really depends on the size of the object. Tiny things come close to the Earth all the time, every day. Roughly a hundred tons of material from asteroids and comets bombard our Earth. It's mostly in the form of teeny tiny little sand grain-sized pieces that are perfectly harmless. They make a beautiful bright light and sh 
of shooting stars in the sky, but that's about it. As we get to larger sizes, those impacts become much less frequent. When we talk about close approaches, what's important is how much we know about the object or orbit of an individual asteroid. When we first find something, we know almost nothing about it. Usually we just have a handful of snapshots. That's not a lot to go on. So then the race is on to gather more information about it. When we call something a, a near-Earth object, what we mean is that it comes within about 1.3 times the Earth-Sun distance. That doesn't mean it's, it has any significant chance of impacting the Earth. But we have to figure out exactly how close does it get. The process depends upon correlating more observations over time and then gradually refining those orbit estimates. So, from what I've heard in the past, I was always told, basically, if it gets between the Earth and the Moon, that's when you need to start getting a bit nervous. Ars Technica, do you have a favorite near-Earth object? Amy, I really like this object called 2010 TK7. It's the first known near-Earth Trojan asteroid. It's gravitationally stuck to the Earth. Jupiter has millions of them, maybe even billions that are stuck to it. These are objects that are trapped in a gravi gravitational residence with the parent planet. For a long time, we didn't think Earth had any, but it turns out we do. We have an asteroid companion, if you will. It's not going to stay there forever. Eventually, these objects tend to get perturbed out, of, out by other planets and so forth. But for now, we have an asteroid that goes around the sun in more or less the same path that we do. It is stuck to us as we go, so goes 2010 TK7. Ars Technica. What are the telltale signs you look for that indicate an object might pose a real danger to Earth? This is the important part, my friends. The first thing is the orbit. We really want to find out where it's going, of course, and we can get the relative velocity from that orbit. The next parameter that we really care about is the size, because the impact energy is the kinetic energy. If we assume the object's a sphere, the volume of the sphere is roughly proportional to the size cube. So small changes in size make a really big difference in the impact energy. Very true. The good news is that we know where 90% of the asteroids larger than a kilometer are. We have a very good understanding of that population now. The medium-sized asteroids, not so much. We're maybe only familiar with about 40% of that population, and the comments are a different question entirely. Ars Technica. A lot of the humor in this movie comes from people not taking the impending threat seriously. Granted, the real-world odds are extremely low, but what could we do if we did identify something that might be a threat? Amy. That depends on the circumstances of discovery and the nature of the object, how much time you have and how big the object is. I'm working on a project called the Near-Earth Object Surveyor that is designed to go out and look for medium to large objects, things that are large enough to cause severe regional damage while they're still years or decades away from any potential impact. In other words, we want to find them well before they have a chance of getting close to Earth. If you do that, then you have lots of different options. You may have many different techniques you could bring to bear to push the object out of the way or even just slightly delay the time that it, that it gets close so that the Earth and the object just miss each other. But that all depends on having enough time. Ars Technica, what are some specific strategies? If you have years to decades and the object is not that large, then you can just simply bump it, bump into it. The DART mission that launched last month is supposed to be a test of that kinetic impact strategy. The idea is to make a spacecraft that has a certain amount of mass, and you bump it into the asteroid. If the object is not too large, then you can nudge it out of the way, or delay the time of its arrival ever so slightly. That will be enough for it to miss. 
but the strategy only really works if you have time because the amount of energy that it takes to really well, that it takes really depends on the time that you have to do it other options include just making a big chunk of spacecraft that's massive and using the very faint force of its gravity to pull on the asteroid you can just park a spacecraft next to it we think pull it out of the way these are techniques that have not yet been tested in practice but the physics seem to work this way the last resort option would be to use a nuclear device or some sort to try to push the object out of the way. That would be a choice when you would have very little time or if the object is particularly large. In the case of a comet, you have no time. The object is massive and is moving very fast. So in other words, if we're going to get hit by a comet, there's not much we're going to do about it. Ars Technica, what do you think that disaster scenarios involving asteroids and comets continue to capture the public's imagination? So why, sorry, why do you think? Purely from an observer's point of view, these are fascinating objects. They're our nearest neighbors in the solar system. They're very ancient. They've been here since the beginning of our solar system, so they have a lot to teach us. There's also a recognition that impacts do happen. We see collisions within the main belt, for example. And of course you can just look at the moon and see all the craters up there. But there's no need to go out and buy asteroid insurance. This is not like climate change. There's an imminent threat that is happening now and has very serious consequences. Asteroid and comet impacts are very unlikely events. The sensible thing to do is look for asteroids that are large enough to cause severe regional damage. This is a natural disaster that we can theoretically prevent if we do our homework. Hopefully we can do even more advanced surveys, and maybe this is a problem we will someday be able to just cross off our list of worries. So, I did find it quite interesting. It's not quite all sunshine and roses, folks. But coming from a scientist that knows what they're talking about, it is something uh, a bit more positive than you see in some of these disaster movies. But hey, look, I didn't start this as a plug for this show, but it does look quite interesting to me, actually, because it, it sounds like something that would happen to me. So it's called Don't Look Up, and it's going to be on Netflix. I don't know if it is now. Uh, but anyway, folks, I hope that you enjoyed those stories. Now... If you want to catch more stories like this, I'm going to be doing a few more episodes of the News of the Damned in coming weeks. I've got quite a backlog of stories to cover. And again, thank you, Trey and Jeff, for sending those stories through. I just haven't got to them yet. As always, there's a link in the show notes to all of these articles if you want to go and check them out. Right, so that is the News of the Damned for this episode. Now we're going to get into the second half of that excellent interview that I had with Chaz of the Dead. Again, thanks, Chaz, so much for coming on. And like I say, I've just got to get some of these backlogged episodes cleared out of the way and get through New Year's. And, but in the meanwhile, I'll probably be recording with Chaz fairly soon again to see what he's been up to, what's going on in his neck of the woods. But again, this was just one of those conversations. The time just flew by. Like I said, you know, we talked for three hours. And when we both finished, it was just like, wow, that, that was one, an awesome conversation. But second, it just flew by as it often does when we do things that we enjoy. So go and get yourself some snacks, whatever you like to enjoy. When you're listening to the show, go and get yourself a nice drink. Sit back and enjoy the second half of this awesome conversation that I had with Chaz of the Dead. I really do hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it for you. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the Paranormal Sun are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint or the position of JT, the Paranormal Sun, or Tower Studios New Zealand. 
So yeah, it, yeah, look, it's, it's, it, it is fascinating, man. The amount of stuff that's out there. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, well, I, I've always loved to travel. So to combine the two passions like that is, is, uh, one, something I just love, uh, period. But it is, it's something that is kind of a, it's a wall in research you first come across. If you're like, uh, uh, go ahead and try it. Google haunted Africa. Everything that comes up is in South Africa. You know, yeah, it's only yeah. in these English speaking zones. Yep. But if you go to these other places and you speak to people, there's crazy paranormal things happening everywhere. So to, to go in and, you know, kind of decipher and, and bring these stories back, um, you know, interview people and, uh, translate these forgotten works and, uh, you know, thank, thank God for computers. They definitely help. My oh, Spanish yeah. is okay, but it's, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd be lost about computers yeah. and I'm the same. I'm um, passable. Yeah. There's, yeah, well, and I also have a, you know, a, an international community of, of friends and people from all over the world who are, you know, willing to help me translate things. And I help them with their English uh, stuff as well. And, you know, we, we are able to, to share this uh, in the, this uh, global community at a distance, um, to really bring stories, um, that, that are forgotten back to the forefront. So I'd, I'd like to get these Siberian ones out. Um, I, I want to get them out. As, I'm so ready to go and investigate. Of course. But there's so much red tape still to be done. Uh, but hopefully well, I've got a couple other places in mind and other cases to look at. Um, if you do find any uh, odd ones over um, in the Pacific Islands, you know, some of those remote islands, I, I'm sure there's uh, some cases waiting waiting to be discovered. Uh and if you're looking for another weird one, I've got a, a super weird story coming out in this month's Paranormality magazine. Right. Um, about um, men in black wielding machetes. This, nice. This duo of machete wielding men in black, which is a detail I've never heard of before. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> so uh, it's definitely a, a weird story, and uh, those are the best ones. So uh, that was a quick plug for those guys. Go check that out. <laughs> yeah, and and believe it or not, I think that's I think I'm actually on the Paranormality uh, Network. I can tell you in a second because mm -hmm. I put the app on the phone, and they asked me ages ago. Well, actually, I think I asked them. I saw that there were a lot of shows like mine. I was like, "How do I get on your? How do I get on your network?" And they're like, "Oh, okay, you're on it." I was like, "Okay, sweet." <laughs> so, so, so that yeah, one of the easy. the guys who who runs it is um, from Venice, Florida, just to the south of here. He's a good guy, and yeah, they they do, uh, run a great site great uh podcast network and uh the magazine's new i think they're on their second issue coming out this week oh, nice. um, with the machete men in black but um it's a fun one it's uh focused around the podcasts and weird stories so go check that out there look there are definitely some awesome stories from down our way and also in the pacific a couple episodes you might want to go back and check out uh one was nan madal which was the last episode of season one so um, I, I've got a bit of a weird numbering thing. Like I number all the, I do like 20 a, a season, but also I have bonuses in that. So I'm coming up on 50 mm. episodes, but I've actually done like 80 episodes. Um, but as far as mainline episodes, it's the end of season one. And then, uh, that's one. And then the, uh, the one about New Zealand was the Kaikoura lights. And then mm. obviously the Westall case. And there are some other really astounding ones in the Pacific that um, I'll, I'll make sure to catch up and, and let you know about. And there's some more I've got in the future. But one of the things um, 
that's always annoyed me about science at large, let's just say institutional science, is this. If, for example, you came out and you said ancient Egyptians did not build the pyramids without help, whatever the help was, let's say it was Atlanteans, aliens, it doesn't really matter. Well, you're a racist because you're taking away their accomplishment. But at the same time, when ancient cultures tell us we didn't build this, other people built it or star people or whatever, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And it's always pissed me off to tell you the truth to no end that, oh, well, um, we'll we'll give them credit when we want to, basically when it fits our narrative. And I've gotten Mm -hmm. on the program more than once, man, and I've just let go about these things because... It annoys me when you listen to people say, so Nan Madol, for example, Nan Madol is an island in the Pacific. And probably when you see the stonework, you'll go, oh, yeah, I know that place. And it's this massive site built out of basalt. Um, They moved over 1,100 tons of basalt and built these crazy walls and buildings and everything else. Well, the people Mm -hmm. of the island say that it was there. They didn't build it. And they say that it was built by another race of people and they also say that they use black magic to basically build it and whether it was uh, acoustics or levitation or something else uh, again who knows but the thing is like i say again it's like i I love it when archaeologists will say oh well no no that you that it was definitely these people who built it even though they tell us no we didn't build it so Mm -hmm. to me it's just a matter of kind of mainstream science having it both ways and making it fit a box when again if you if you sit down and you look at these things as a true skeptic, you should be going where the evidence leads you, not where not where you want it to take you, if that makes sense. And I'm sure that you would agree on a lot of these things. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, All absolutely. I know is I do find it fascinating that they always say, well, no, no matter what these people tell us and no matter what their tradition of the last thousand years says, they're wrong. It's like, well, hold on. Mm. Yeah, it's <laughs> this, this know-it-allism that, that um, is kind of persistent in... Uh, academia, but in a lot of fields, you know, no one wants to admit they're, they're wrong. Like, no one wants to go back and rewrite the paper. And, uh, as uh, one of these things, especially in archaeology and anthropology and things, you know, if, uh, if you go and prove that, you know, this thing is wrong about the pyramids, then you've dis, yep. uh, there's, there's a hundred scholars whose papers you've just ruined. You know what yep. I mean? There's like a, a, a group of people who you've just invalidated their research. Yep. Um, it happens in physics too. They, uh, how many years did those people waste on string theory before they found out the math <laughs> was bad? <laughs> you know, like they went back to the very start and they're like, oh no, this was supposed to be a four and yeah, it's a carry, five. Yeah, carry the whole the thing's broken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, 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 they fucked it all up. <laughs> it's it's kind of uh, like the it's kind of like the scene from that original, um, the day the earth stood still. And he just walks up mm. to the chalkboard and like adds a Y and it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's always something, you know, it, for me, it was, I remember, I think it was uh, fourth or fifth grade. And one of my teachers was said that Texas was the biggest state. And I was like, no, it isn't. It's Alaska. Yeah. And she said, no, you're wrong. It's Texas. And it's I knew 100%. Yeah. yeah, I knew 100% it was Alaska. And then that was kind of like the first moment where I was like, oh, you know, anybody, anybody can be confidently wrong. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you know, whether it's uh, authority figures or random people, anyone can be super confident that they're right and just be completely wrong. 
And it's something that people, you know, some people realize and some people don't. And it, it's really hard to, uh, it's a, a definitely a different frame of mind. <laughs> Yeah, man. Look, I, I, I'm a different, I'm a different sort of bird. And if you listen to the episodes, it would definitely come across. I'm the type of person when science come out and say things like, "This is our best guess or our best theory." Hey, then I'm on board. But when you come out and you tell me this is what happened, it's like, where's the time machine? Because you sure as hell weren't around back then. So don't tell me this is what happened just because you want an ego trip to say you know everything. Um, do you know much about Charles Fort? Um, uh, no, I, I'm not familiar. So Charles Fort is basically, in, in my mind anyway, he is like the grandfather of the paranormal and the unexplained. Oh, the Fortean researcher. I thought you were talking about a physical fort. No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I thought we were doing haunted him. locations in New Zealand still. I was like, ooh, yeah. Fort Charles. Where's that at? <laughs> uh, look, there, there are some things I'll fill you in on about New Zealand um, off air because there's definitely some <laughs> interesting things here that aren't well known. Well, that's it, Charles Ford. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's mm -hmm. how he started out, and and I'm one of those weird kids, man. From a young age, I read Charles Ford books, and like most people would, it, it's it's his writing style wasn't conducive to sit there and read it mm -hmm. like a novel, and uh, a lot of kind of back and forth in that. But but I loved hearing these well, the, the language of the birds and yeah. those weird yeah. those weird texts. Yeah, yeah. No, and, it's definitely um, bizarre. And uh, and Charles Ford, that's what always pissed him off really was that like astronomers just say oh well we know everything it's like how can you possibly know everything about a mm -hmm. universe that's so large most mortal minds couldn't even begin to comprehend it and uh and yeah there there were some things that he said that were probably wrong but again you know he wasn't afraid to at least postulate and again that's what he always said you know when they actually formed uh, i can't remember what it was off the top of my mind but they formed something like the the Fortean society in honor of him mm -hmm. in New York. And he had several friends and they all basically surprised him and said, we're, we want you to be the honorary president and everything else. And he actually got really annoyed. And he said, no, because he goes, I don't want anyone to worship me. Like I'm some person who has all the answers. And he said that, I believe that this is the problem that academia has. As soon as you put someone up on a pedestal, that they're infallible and they can't be wrong. This is where we run into problems because then you get things like people who say that Darwin had to be right no matter what. And if something doesn't fit that narrative, we either throw it out or we chisel it away so that it fits. And Charles Fort was very much about you keep an open mind and being a true skeptic, you look at everything with an open mind. And uh, so Charles Fort, man, he he shaped a lot of the way that I look at these things. And again, I'm pretty humble. And if I'm wrong or I get something wrong, or I'm later proven wrong, I'm happy to put my hand up and say, hey, look, I was wrong. Uh, I've got my opinions, but they're not set in concrete. And uh, I mean, I think that's how we should all be. We should all be open to the idea that if some new evidence presents itself, that we should at the very least re-examine things. You know, you don't have to necessarily agree, but re-examine it and say, does this change the way that I see the world, the universe, everything? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, very well put. And and a couple of things I'll just go over really quick, and then we'll we'll talk about friendship, man. Because Chaz, look, this is awesome, and these are the this is the part of doing the program that makes it all worthwhile to me. I like the research, I like learning new things and all that. I love presenting it for people, but having conversations with like minded people that have 
I've got different thoughts and views on things. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning and gets me motivated to do the program. So the first one was, um, so Jim Mars, I don't know if you've heard of Jim Mars, but yeah, uh, he's actually, uh, cited a few times in this, in my uh, book. Um, (laughs) he's a controversial figure. (laughs) Um, uh, a, a few racist, uh, tirades by him, uh, before his passing in, uh, I think, uh, 2009? Yeah, it wasn't long ago. And uh, it was and, pretty recent. And I didn't know about those tirades to tell you the truth, um, to be honest. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I actually found out about them after I, 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 I sourced them for a lot of the research and I was like, ooh, eh, okay, well, you know. It's, it doesn't really come off in his work. Uh, it's, uh, well, that, the books I've read yeah. by him are pretty well done. Uh, but no, uh, apparently he had, uh, towards the end there, he had some uh, some uh, controversial opinions, to put it lightly. Well, that, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll have to look uh, a bit more on that because, again, look, I, I keep an open mind. And if somebody, it doesn't invalidate what he did, but at the same time, um, mm-hmm. I've, often, <laughs> I've often said that uh, if I could have a mentor in this field, it would be Jim Mars. And the reason is because he covered everything. He didn't just do UFOs or didn't just look at secret societies or didn't just look at uh, JFK. I-, I didn't know that. So honestly, thanks for telling me. Um, because if somebody goes <laughs> yeah, to me, it's kind of a heartbreaker. You, you yeah. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> well, uh, uh, the- yeah, I think there's some clips still out there. He, he did some, uh, you know, he was doing the speaking tours and things, right. um, very close up until the, the end there. Um, and yeah, I, he said some things <laughs> that well, are less than kind to minorities. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to go and look at that then because, because <laughs> like you say, I mean, from the times that I'd heard him and the books I'd read and, and I've, mm-hmm. I've heard him in a lot of clips and a lot of interviews and that, uh, I, I hadn't heard it. So look, thanks, man. And I will check that out. Hey folks, this is JT. As I'm editing this clip, I just wanted you to know I looked a few times after I did this interview with Chaz to see if I could find any controversy about Jim, and I couldn't really find anything out there about him having made any of these comments, and uh, I also just tried again now. I just had another Google just basically look for Jim Mars racist comments or racist clips, so Chaz may have got the name mixed up with someone else, or maybe there's just something out there I don't know about. But I just wanted to make sure, folks, that I clarified that for what it's worth, I couldn't find anything as of the release of this episode about Jim saying anything that was any more controversial than you would expect someone who was in their 60s or 70s to say. Chaz and I do catch up from time to time on social media, and I will be having him back on the program in future. So I'll ask him the next time we talk just to see if he can point me in the right direction. Now, back to the conversation. But with with Jim Mars, among other people, I mean, he's an advocate, and I fully agree with the fact that there has been so much technology that has been suppressed over time. And I'm not just talking about like the last 50 or 100 years, but thousands of years, things that have been discovered or rediscovered and it's kind of like oh well we'll just kind of sweep this under the rug and keep it quiet we don't need every man knowing about this and so like you were talking about the the ufo with the uh with the insect parts things like that you know the the flying platform Mm -hmm. i'm not surprised at all to hear about things like that 
And then uh, also what I was going to say about that whole area of Chile and Argentina, believe it or not, that book that I was telling you about, the story, um, I don't know about you, but for myself, I've read so many things in my life. Oftentimes there'll be a book or a story I've read and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I've got to find out what this book was or try and find it now. And I've looked for several, and that's one of the books I've never been able to track down. But it was basically a book I read in school about South American, you know, at the time I think they called it superstitions. And it was the story of uh, a boy who was basically in the Andes, in the southern Andes. And in and around that area is actually where this supposed valley and these entities that you couldn't see were supposed to have been located. And then you've also got the fact that when Magellan and other Spanish explorers sailed past Patagonia, they said they saw giants there and they saw fires, mm -hmm. even though mainstream archaeology will tell you that it wasn't settled um, at that time anyway. And I, I just find it quite interesting that they saw something. You don't yeah. just see something that you equate to being fires and larger than man-sized creatures and just completely make it up. And then uh, mm -hmm. one of the but, interesting ones you were talking about the UFs, UFOs and the kind of the conquistadors and the Spanish explorers. Again, synchronicity. I was covering a, a news segment. I always do a news uh, segment before most of my episodes, and I call it the News of the Damned as an homage to Charles Ford. Mm -hmm. And this was specifically about Oklahoma. Now, there's a national park in northern Oklahoma, and I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. Uh, but anyway, they said that uh, this conquistador who went there, and it, I think it was Coronado, he said that he had three of his men disappear in flashes of green light. And this is in his journals. Mm. And so, uh, again, it's just, I mean, he doesn't, I, I haven't gone back and found the journals because I only just read that this week. But again, I was just fascinated by this because most of us in this field, we've heard of Columbus and that he saw lights. In fact, uh, his ship sighted lights in the sky the day before uh, they made landfall in the Americas the first time. And mm -hmm. going through the Sargasso Sea and some of the things that they said they saw there, there's all kinds of stories that the sailors saw lights under the water, uh, which could be many things, could be bioluminescence. But I find it interesting that that was in the area that is the Bermuda Triangle. And also there's all these stories about the underground or underwater base uh, off of the Bahamas that's purportedly a UFO base, and also that the U.S. basically has the equivalent of Area 51 on land underwater in that area. I think, can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's it's an acronym. So it's an acronym for this underwater base where they basically, they tell us, of course, that they're just trialing submarines and different things, but who knows what they're, they're trialing there. And I find mm -hmm. it fascinating um, that, Again, people 500 years ago saw things in this area. And uh, continuing with Patagonia, um, Darwin actually was uh, his the HMS Beagle or yeah. uh, however it was. Uh, they spent some time in the, uh, the land of fire, the Islas de Fuego, right. um, where these uh, native tribes, uh, some of the most bizarre native traditions and art, and things in the world come from the, the Selk Nam tribe and, and these uh, native populations in Patagonia. Um, but they noted uh, a bunch of Bigfoot-like creatures. Uh, they said that the natives told them and they witnessed themselves these kind of lost souls or whatever. Uh, and some of the crew described them as Bigfoot. 
Um, Darwin thought they were just um, exiled members of the tribe, you know, yeah. like people who were, were banished. Um, but there was this kind of mysticism. He, he wrote they were exiled members who had like magical powers or something like that. There was this <laughs> mysticism uh, around them. Uh, so, you know, it's in this area, uh, it's a kind of a really fascinating, bizarre uh, location with really uh, diverse paranormal um, activity. Uh, when you go to Chile in particular, the the culture there is very matter of fact when it comes to UFOs. Right. Um, and, it's something and, that's and similar. Other paranormal things. Yeah, it, it's like when you go to to Roswell, New Mexico, and people are like, "Yeah, the aliens they come here, they're flying in the sky." You know, I've seen them. It's yeah, it's just something that happens. It, it's the same kind of you know nonchalant, like, "Oh yeah, no, I I've seen one, or my mom saw one, or yeah, my buddy was zapped by one." Like that's the the phenomenon. Um, you know, lots of strange stories. I, I went to one national park and spoke to one woman who, um, her husband guided some people to these, uh, this a strange rock formation. Um, uh, it almost looks like tiles. Um, it's up in the Andes and these rocks kind of make these natural forming tiles and it believed that it's a UFO landing spot. Uh, and while they were up there, there was this one of these tiles. They would step into it and there would be like 20 seconds of paralysis. You would be frozen for. Wow. And each one of them tried it, stepping in this tile, and the same thing happened. And, um, you know, they were supposed to camp up there, and they were like, oh, we're good. We're going to go back. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they did the hike back down the same day um, because, uh, you know, this strange kind of uh, phenomenon. And it is things like that where, you know, it's not necessarily even a UFO involved. There's no UFO sightings there. It's just these weird, bizarre interactions. Uh, Patagonia itself, by my count, is the uh, most densely populated water cryptid area in the world. Uh, you could go from lake to river to lake to ocean back and forth for months looking into all the individual wow. aquatic monsters that are uh, said to live in Patagonia. Different. You've got your plesiosaur types. You've got... Uh, there's this one called the water hide that looks like a splayed out cow hide, except it's got eyes on stalks like a snail and it jumps out of the water and grabs you. Uh, there's all kinds of b just bizarre creatures and um, uh, these water deities from the native religions, um, really just truly bizarre folklore in this area. And it's uh, impossibly remote. Uh, you can't really understand it until you, you get out there. And, uh, we took a 26 hour ferry to get, you know, yeah. deep, deep into Patagonia. And, um, it is when it, the, the sun sets, it is an inky black. You, you'll see a, an occasional salmon farm, uh, you know, these little fish farms, but you'll see one and then it'll be hours before you see the next. It's just no one out there. Um, nothing going on. Just these massive mountains, these pebble beaches and lush forests and this cold, cold water. And, um, it's really untouched. It's beautiful. There's no, you don't see like plastic bottles or bags for washing up. It's really untouched land. Um, but it, it's kind of obvious when you're there why there's so much, uh, mythology and, uh, beliefs there. Uh, and in Chile, in the north, they have the deserts um, where yeah. the skies are some of the clearest in the world. 
Um, in the center of the country, they have an area called the UFO Trail, yeah. um, where it's just a bunch of sites that uh, are supposed UFO landings. And I did some experiments and things uh, on that trail. Uh, but the the investigators in Chile, they've always noted that the most bizarre cases, you know, the in the north and the the middle, there's plenty of you know first kind encounters. People are right. seeing them, lights in the sky, uh, yeah. yeah, those kinds of things, and you know, but in Patagonia, it's the highest concentration of these bizarre cases. Yeah, um, one that stands out is a, a girl was zapped by a UFO that shot a, a ray at her, hit her in the back in broad daylight, and the crowd of people saw it. Uh, you know, and again, it's in these remote towns, so there's not really many people there, but they, they saw it. They saw it happen. Uh, abductions, group abductions, um, these strange things that, you know, are extreme in most UFO cases. They seem to happen most often in Patagonia. Uh, and this isn't in a place that has a in-depth, uh, uh, UFO culture, but this area, even though it's the most remote, it's very similar to Siberia in that way. It's one of the first yeah. things I kind of noticed that Siberia, there's not many people living out there, but they're having some crazy, you know, for the amount of people that are there, they're experiencing quite a large number of, of paranormal activity, way more than the, the people living in these densely populated areas. And it, it seems consistent in Patagonia as well. And Alaska as well. That's that's another area mm -hmm. that's there's a, a triangle up there. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to investigate, but that triangle is massive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's and it's, so it's in the middle of nowhere. Space. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's a lot. <laughs> well, well, a couple things before I forget. Uh, I just want to mention, and I'll let you continue on. There's a series. It was on Discovery Channel here, and it's always hard to tell because we'll get a series mm -hmm. on, and and I've had to learn to write it down because it'll be on our channel here of whatever, right? It might be like um, TLC, but it's made by someone else. So if I said to you, mm -hmm. oh, this was on this channel, you'd go to look for it. You'd be like, dude, what are you talking about? Uh, that's mm -hmm. not on here. But there's a series I've started watching. I've only watched the first two or three episodes, but there's one about the Alaskan Triangle that's been on that yeah. I've, I've started watching. And there's lots of things there that I know about or I know a little bit about, and then they'll do a bit more. That's one. And then a case like you were talking about, that UFO zapping the girl. Now, I've covered mm -hmm. it on the program, but again, it's one of those little known ones, and it's from Brazil. Have you heard of the Colores uh, UFO flap? Yes, uh, yeah. absolutely. That's a, a very good um, uh, list of uh, very intriguing encounters. Yeah, and that, that's got a real tie-in like you were saying. It, again, it happened, mm -hmm. although not in the mountains and the cold that happened in the Amazon rainforest. So again, very mm -hmm. isolated area. And they had these happen over like three to six months. And they people watching these things happening in broad daylight, after hours, at night, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And it basically whipped the people in this village like into a frenzy like you would be if you knew that there was a mass murderer running loose in the streets. I mm -hmm. mean, there's just so many of these cases. And yeah, that's another one that, that's when you talked about the girl being zapped. That's the first thing that came to mind was the Colores case. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. There was another case quite similar in my book uh, I mentioned as well, where um, uh, a girl was abducted from her home while her family was there. You know, they saw the lights outside and they were like trying to, you know, 
scare off these aliens and they were all freaked out. And the one girl just stood up and walked out the door and vanished. Uh, and then she reappeared in the center of town several miles away. Um, it's dark, but it, she reappeared in this giant flash of light and it woke up people. It wow. set off car alarms and things like that. And she just appeared. Uh, she was wet. She was in her pajamas, but she was like covered in moisture and she was freaked out. She had, you know, these vague memories of walking through a hallway and, and that's about it. And, um, it became like a weird religious site for a minute. People were like paying pilgrimage to it. Um, and it's, you know, this weird line between religion and, uh, yeah. UFO people were also coming and, you know, kind of contributing to the, the, this weird mysticism. Uh, it, it's weird how cultures in different areas react to these these interactions. Yeah. Uh, but it is something that is pretty consistent that they they seem to happen. Well, there there was another case, and I'm sure it was in Chile that I heard about. And this was I haven't gone into it on the program yet because again, I mean, so many subjects, man. It's like where do you find the time? I haven't got into time slips and missing time aside from just like very basic. But there was this case where there were some Chilean, uh, I want to say, army uh, mm -hmm. soldiers out on a training mission, and one of the, and basically their commanding officer disappeared. And yeah, he turned book, up. Uh, the story is actually in um, the okay. Hunt for the Friendship book. I included that one. Yeah, um, as an example of of how extreme and how bizarre these abductions in Chile can get. Yeah, um, he, and yeah, that one was um, uh, what was his last name, uh, Lieutenant. Um, I have the book here. I could look it up. Um, but he, yeah, he, uh, and was on a training mission on the yes. side of, uh, a mountain with, uh, his, yeah. uh, uh, subordinates. And they, uh, uh Corporal Valdez. That's, that's it. Yep. Uh, the Valdez case. And, uh, he, they kind of took formation and there was this big light kind of sending down toward the mountain. Uh, all the animals, you know, were, um, seeing it too and they were reacting and the sergeant kind of walked or the corporal i'm sorry he walked off towards the light and um he vanished for about 15 minutes and 15 minutes later they found him and he was afraid he was freaked out he couldn't remember their names and he couldn't remember his own name he was in this weird kind of catatonic freaked out state uh but the weirdest part was that he the the clean shaven corporal had come back with the beard. That's what and that his out. watch yeah. was several <laughs> days wound forward, um, and so that's one of the best examples of this kind of missing time or this time alter alteration, where he was gone for fifteen minutes, but he's come back with this physical effect, like he's been gone for for much longer. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I heard that, I, I said to myself, "Oh wait, this can't be real," you know. So. I did a bit of looking on it uh, because there there are, I mean, there are some cases over the years that you can kind of scratch the surface and find out that there's not a lot of proof to it. But this one, I was just dumbfounded mm -hmm. by, and that was the thing that got me was the beard. You know, it's like he had a beard that mm -hmm. was at least a two to three day growth and yet he's only gone mm -hmm. a few minutes. It's like, what? Yeah. And, and the source I used for the story, it was they were interviewed right after it happened. And it was done by a professor from one of the universities nearby. And he was a journalist and a professor. And he, he was like, yeah, I, these people were freaked out. And I can attest to the fact that the colonel did have a beard. 
His watch was wound forward. Wow. Um, and they all said that that wasn't how it was before. They were, they were definitely something occurred to them, you know, and it was very, uh, there's an audio recording of this interview too. Um, if you speak Chilean Spanish, because it's a pretty yeah. tough dialect. Yeah. Um, but it, there's an audio recording of it. And yeah, it's, it seems to be a, a legitimate experience and it is one of the most bizarre. Um, and Chile actually is one of two countries that, um, do their UFO research above board. You know, the yeah. U.S. does it, uh, secretly. They have these, uh, UAP projects, Project Blue Book, all those kinds of stuff. It's a secret until Project years Grudge. later. And then they, yeah. And they, I wonder they who named it. that, you know, <laughs> Project Grudge. Stop <laughs> but, uh, asking. <laughs> Chile, um, and France, interestingly enough, is the other one. They have a, government um uh a separate government agency that is above board that um films and investigates ufos and people are you know they're all amazed by these navy ufo videos coming out from uh the u.s navy but the chilean uh ufo research oh, yeah. the government research organization has been putting out similar oh, yeah. videos for decades and better, in, in my mind better 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 videos yeah there's super bizarre ones out there that are again they're on these high-tech military cameras and things that yeah. are and they're they're decades before these these new ones and uh you know people are are so surprised oh well there's only two or three of these navy ones no i have <laughs> volumes of yeah. them i can show you of of similar uh similar objects doing similar bizarre movements well one of the things that i do um very, look, man, again, it's it's amazing how similar your and my mindsets are. What I do on the program, wherever I can, I try and source audio from as close to the events as possible. So, like, I was really fortunate to be able to dig up some of the interviews of Lonnie Zamora right after mm -hmm. basically his sighting occurred. Uh, on the last one, the Val Johnson case, I had about three good audio clips, and one of them was within a year of him having this encounter because again, I want these people, whether they're alive or, or, or past, I want them to have the chance to say what they saw and what they encountered. And most importantly, as close to the event as possible, because again, all of our memories over time, we might forget something or we kind of remember something a different way. But if you've got the instances as close as you can to the events happening, in my mind, it's going to give us about the clearest picture that we can get of what the witness says they saw at the time. And like the Chilean stuff, though, man, there is some amazing stuff out there. I'm sure you've seen the one of that craft that was kind of uh, cigar shape or kind of rod shaped. And it was like emitting mm -hmm. that black cloud in the. Yeah, uh, that's one of the most bizarre ones. Yeah. I think that one's in the book as well. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, the more bizarre videos that they've released. Um, it seems to be uh, dumping some kind of uh, substance. Uh, yeah, it's just a, a lot of these weird videos. And uh, it's interesting because they are public and there is public discussion behind them. There are people and a couple times they have, you know, been like, oh, yeah, you guys are right. This this is a weather balloon right. from this place or whatever. And they're able to confirm it by crowdsourcing for the information. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times it works the opposite direction where uh, on that video in particular, they were like, well, let's, you know, use the camera angle and let's calculate flight paths and. Could that be a uh, a jetliner that's dumping illegally? 
they they tried and it all it did was confirm that it wasn't because the plane that they were expecting it to be they were able to match uh up with a different area of the video and it was a whole kind of uh, uh research situation right. um but it it occurs because it is above board because it you are able to to let uh dedicated people like individuals in in the public are able to get that content and yeah. material and and look into it. And you're right man, look, they like France, I'm a bit mixed on France and the reason I say that is there are things that the French government have done and that they've released that I would say yeah, they've done well there. But through some of the stuff I've dug through and some of the research I've found, I personally and again this is just my personal opinion, I think that there are some things that they're still withholding. Because you'll find in other documents about other cases, you'll have confirmation that there's footage of this or that that exists. But when mm-hmm. they've been questioned about it in the past, they've said, oh, no, there was no footage or we don't have that footage. But in their own documents, they allude to this footage that's been seen by them. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. where is this footage then? One of the things, I think it was in the Colores case where I covered over actually the French government started talking about these cases that happened in South America when the Brazilian government has been pretty upfront that, yes, we dispatched Air Force officers and everything else to the area, but they claim there's nothing to it and there's nothing in their archives. But the French see, on the other hand, have said, well, hang on, there's all this documentation because we've seen it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the Brazilian government just, oh, it's just confusion, confusion on their part, you know, which uh, did made me did make me laugh. I find, and again, I don't know what they are. I don't know what kind of collusion governments have at a high level because I've never been privileged enough to walk those halls. But I do find Mm -hmm. it interesting that depending on the case and depending on how good the case was or how many people cited it, there seems to be differing answers on cases that might have similar evidence, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, what what's occurring in whatever this, uh, I, I guess you can call it a soft disclosure right. um, that's occurring kind of right now, it's, uh, it's definitely motivated, right? They wouldn't yeah. be releasing or discussing this information without a motive. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, they wouldn't be doing it if it didn't somehow serve their, their purpose. So it's interesting to see it uh, disclosure kind of fall out along these these cold war lines um for lack of a better word who knows why they're admitting to these videos now i have some people i i trust um, i've discussed to uh on the the inside there's more videos from what i understand more convincing ones uh that exist uh that aren't very classified uh, i mean they're classified to you and me but uh, the the people I'm in contact with, uh, they're not the top rungs of the security world. <laughs> so right. if they can see them, they're they're not that classified. Yeah. Um, and they seem to be leaking these smaller, less convincing videos, uh, kind of one at a time. Right, in a build-up um, almost. Yeah. So it, it, it's a bizarre. It's bizarre. Um, it's interesting, and but it seems purposeful and. Uh, whatever their motive is, is almost certainly militaristic. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think uh, we're getting a, an extreme amount of skepticism from a lot of corners of, of the research world when it comes to these videos, um, when it comes to Tom DeLonge and To The Stars Academy as a whole. I'm actually, uh, you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm on Team Tom. <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, 
I think he's doing fine. Um, you know, if I had access to those videos, I'd, I'd put them out in the same way. But the, it's, it's more about the response to them being released that's really intriguing and interesting. Right. And it's something we're, we're going to keep an eye out for. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's bizarre. I don't know what, what the motive is. Is it to make sure to spend, uh, convince Russia and China to spend a thousand years looking into UFOs and millions of dollars and waste their time and effort? Oh, or is it to, is it a genuine? You know, is it like, hey, we don't know what these are and we hope, uh, like in Chile and in France, maybe the public can give us more insight? Who knows? It's, it's a, a bizarre situation. It's intriguing. And I'm curious to see if these, these other videos I've heard of, what will happen with those? Uh, how far this kind of, uh, soft disclosure will go. Look, it's, it's interesting that you say what you've said. Uh, like you, I mean, look, I know, I know people. But again, it's not like I hang out and have lunch with retired brigadier generals from the Air Force or anything. <laughs> but I have known people in the government of the U.S. at both a state and national level. I've known people in the U.K. parliament. I've known people here in, a, in, in Australia in the government. And they all tell me the same things. Basically, number one, politics as we know it is acting. Most of what happens is scripted. As far as what they say, how they say it, when they say it, there are certain lines that they're free to move within, but there are certain things that are out of bounds. And it's made very clear to you very early on that if you step out of bounds on these subjects, you will not be elected again. And I had a very good friend, actually, I went to school with who was told, he said, well, you didn't elect me. You know, the people elected me and they just laughed at him and they basically told him. And how hard do you think it is for there to be some scandal about you and you'll never be coming back? You won't be getting voted back in. It's not that hard for us to have something happen and have some things released and you won't be reelected. Now, uh, one of the things that I know in general, and especially the person that I knew who served in the UK for over 40 years, they told me UFOs are out of bounds. You do not talk about UFOs, even if you're questioned about it, you just kind of laugh it off. Now, obviously, there's that part of the puzzle. Then you have the part of the puzzle along the lines of someone like Werner von Braun. And I'm sure you know the famous story about what his secretary supp supposedly said. So for those of you in the listening audience that don't know, Werner von Braun was a Nazi scientist in World War II. He's the man who basically developed the V-2 rocket that was the precursor to the intercontinental ballistic missile. And after the war, he came to the U.S. under Operation Paperclip and went to work at NASA. And basically, if Werner von Braun and other Nazi scientists wouldn't have come on board with NASA, we never would have beaten the Soviets to the moon, I can tell you that much. It was claimed by his secretary that near his death, on his deathbed, basically, Werner von Braun basically told her that the first boogeyman was the Soviet Union and that the military-industrial context uh, complex was going to milk the Soviet Union for every dollar they could. Then after that, it would become terrorism. And terrorism would become the new, the new boogeyman, and they would get every dollar out of us taxpayers that they could. Then the last one would become aliens, and that basically aliens were going to invade the Earth, and that we needed to spend all the money we could to defend ourselves from aliens. Now, again, that was basically supposedly a one-on-one -on -one conversation, so we've got no idea 
of knowing that that is 100% right or not. But I do find it interesting that we've had things like Space Force, and now we've got things, just what you were saying, Chaz, you know, the slow kind of leaked disclosure, different things slowly being put out there. And there are conversations had much more publicly than any time I can remember about, well, what if these entities aren't friendly? What are we going to do about it? And I mean, Ronald Reagan, obviously in the UN, uh, I can't remember, I think it was 1983, mm -hmm. he had the conversation in the UN about saying how quickly we would forget all of our problems and, and become friends, basically, if we could prove that there was something from outer space that was here and didn't have the best uh, the best plans for us. And that was basically in the build up to building all of the Star Wars stuff and the the uh, the laser satellites and all of that. So I do find it quite interesting that whatever is going on in the background, if that comes to be the case, I think that a lot of people that at least have heard of the things like Werner von Braun and things like um, what was it Project Bluebeam, where there's uh, supposedly the CIA can use holograms in the clouds and that to make us think that there are other things there that aren't actually there at the time, be it religious implications, be it Jesus coming back, or uh, Muhammad, or whatever else you want to talk about. Uh, I do find it quite fascinating, and so I'm always... It's not that I, I don't believe that it could be something less prosaic, but at the same time, I always keep one part of my mind on that and saying, hey... Mm -hmm. Or is this going to be when we find out that this is this is really what's going on? Well, yeah, something I always always remind myself is constantly, especially with the UFO subject, is to remember that the, all the theories about UFOs and aliens and things that we still don't have a definitive alien creature. Um, yep. That's you know dust mites. Uh, <laughs> we do have billions of humans though, and most of the time humans are pretty weird. So yeah, <laughs> it is yeah. something you have to, to consider when, um, uh, talking about like Gurpinikov's crafts. If this entomologist really just stumbled across this, maybe then yeah, maybe, uh, well, the Russians would be well aware of his work by now. Oh, yeah. You know, he died in 2001. So maybe the, there's Russian physical craft. Um, I don't necessarily believe that. They're not the most prosperous country. Uh, <laughs> but it's possible. It could happen. Uh, again, the U.S. could have stumbled on this independently as well. Uh, or it could be, you know, holograms in the sky. Uh, you, of course, light can move in those impossible ways that these, these crafts seem to be doing. Um, if it's, you know, a projection from somewhere. Maybe it's all just a big puppet show to scare China. Um, yep. into thinking that we have these craft um, and that they need to, you know, back off. It, it might be a psychological warfare. Uh, there's definitely a million human explanations that uh, could be applied. And if you're looking statistically wise, those are probably the most likely explanations is that there, there's some kind of human action behind whatever's occurring. Hawkins uh, Razor, yeah. But you also have a lot of strange research out there that points in other directions. Um, whatever is occurring, it's definitely strange. Um, and it's definitely something that's, um, you know, I, when it comes to the idea of Ronald Reagan thought that, you know, he hoped for aliens so that we could all work together. Uh, I think that's, 
wishful thinking. <laughs> I think whatever the plan is, whatever currently is happening is a much more short short sighted. Um, it's definitely looking at what's occurring in Russia and in China. You know, they're, they're uh, with Russia moving on the Ukraine and, uh, China moving closer to Taiwan and areas in the South China Sea. There's definitely, uh, we're, we're definitely in this cold war. Uh, it, it never ended. The, the opponent yeah. just kind of shifted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a new focus, but, uh, whatever this, this disclosure, um, uh, I would be, uh, I'm almost certain it's connected to those kinds of actions. Um, uh, and whether that is, maybe it is to say, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because the aliens are here. Maybe that is what's occurring. And maybe China and Russia are sitting on a bunch of videos themselves and they're like, oh, oh, well, the American, it's not the Americans. You know, maybe this is us finally admitting it. Right. Um, maybe. <laughs> But who knows? Uh, wh whatever it is, again, though, I think it, it has to be linked to the, these, uh, global actions. Otherwise, the Pentagon wouldn't be, um, okaying it. Can I say I've seen footage that, uh, isn't out there yet? No. But I, I fully agree. There's definitely, in, in my mind, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's other footage because I've heard of, like I say, I've heard of these films re referenced in other, files from the CIA, from the military that have been released, referring to other mm -hmm. footage. Now, one of them was, I want to say it was John Glenn. Now, and I've, I've discussed this on the program. I did it on one episode. I just can't remember which one. Now, John Glenn claimed that they saw a basically a UFO at an airbase in California. I want to say Edwards Air Force mm -hmm. Base. They filmed it, and they had several thousand feet of film. They sent it off to Washington. And then when they asked about this footage, where is this footage and where did it go? They basically said, what footage? And the footage basically mm -hmm. disappeared into the, the vaults of whoever it was, and it was never seen again. And he was told later on, if you want to be an astronaut, it would be a really good idea if you didn't ask about that anymore. So he stopped asking. And mm -hmm. it's not only him. I mean, this has happened in other countries and other places. Australia is another instance where footage of a purported ufo landing in a dry riverbed and again they had something like sixteen thousand feet of eight mil footage of it and it went away and disappeared and when australia opened their vaults and said this is everything we had of course the researchers who knew better said well where's this footage and they said oh no we don't we don't have any footage what footage are you talking about so mm -hmm. i do find it interesting this cat and mouse game and and like you say is it a, see it's it's easy for us down here in Australia and New Zealand and why I say that is it's very easy if that footage would have gotten shipped off to the US right but the mm -hmm. odds of the US government shipping it off to an ally like us maybe to the UK but I have a hard time believing that and the reason I say that is the US didn't even want to give the UK the atom bomb after the war why would they want to give them some proof that there's objects that move beyond our known physics and it's highly doubtful to me that they would have done it but what my personal feeling is on things like this great ufo disclosure we're supposed to have in june is that they've outsourced it to private entities that are mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes still part of the government so that things like foia won't work because if you don't know who has it and even if you do know who has it 
How do we know they don't yeah, just move it on to another? Out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- that's been um, in the, the research uh, world for a minute. And it's, through my research, I, I tend to agree that the um, the real evidence uh, of, you know, downed craft, these artifacts and things, they're in the hands of private individuals. Um, and no one really knows who, but I'm going to yeah. go ahead. I'm going to blow the whistle. It's Robert Bigelow. <laughs> He's got him. I'm pretty sure it's Robert Bigelow, like 90%. Um, he's at least one of the, these, uh, people who, who seem to have some genuine alien artifacts. Of course, then there's the whole Lazar narrative where the government has several down craft. Um, you know, some that they've shot down, some that they've dug out of archaeological sites, you know, uh, which is again, another fascinating story. Uh, with a lot of interesting evidence, but not really sure which way to go, uh, either, either direction there. Um, but it's, it's definitely a, uh, a situation that there does seem to be some kind of, of interaction. Uh, the, the government and these private sectors, uh, are involved in the UFO phenomenon. Uh, and they're spending money and they're putting effort into it. Uh, so what that means, whether it's just, again, just for national defense from our, uh, you know, other countries, or if it's planetary defense, that remains to be seen for us, uh, minor folk. Um, but when you have people like Robert Bigelow buying the Skinwalker Ranch, yep. uh, I think that's fascinating because if you take, uh, Gurbinikov's research, we go back to our insects, uh, our Russian insect scientist. He says that the landing spots and the testing areas for using this craft would be inundated with bizarre poltergeist and paranormal activity. Uh, so I think there's a good possibility that uh, old Bigelow's got an, a working craft. And the reason he bought that ranch was to see what Cover kind story. of, to, yeah, well, no, to research these side effects. Uh, you know, he tested the craft a bunch out there and then he sent in a team to see about all these weird Bigfoot creatures and skinwalker creatures, poltergeist activity that, uh, operating the craft has left behind. Another fun, awesome theory, but again, nowhere really to go with, with proof, uh, until I can get him in an elevator, <laughs> interrogate him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, um, the the thing about that, and and again, I'm not trying to poke any holes in your theory that, but but the thing mm-hmm. about that to me is that there are, I mean, there are newspaper articles going back to the early 1900s that there were odd things going on in and around the Uinta Basin. Yeah, that's true. It all starts somewhere, right? So, any one of these places all over the world, be it the Bermuda Triangle, be it uh, Skinwalker Ranch, be it places sacred sites in South America. It all starts Patagonia, Siberia. Yep. Yep. So uh, Friendship uh, Island. So some of these more modern ones, like you're saying, I mean, they could very well be something along those lines. And one of the things that's that's always fascinated me about Friendship Island. So the thing about Friendship Island and again, sorry, folks, I've not done a very good job about leading you up talking about Friendship Island because most of you never would have heard about it. But in the 1980s, there were claims coming out of Chile that there was this island that was occupied by tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, although I don't know if they were all blue-eyed, but basically Nordic-looking individuals, be them, be they advanced humans or aliens, but that these people basically occupied this island 
and we're communicating with people on the outside world by FM radio and other, I think it was ham radio and CB mm -hmm. radio, and that they were basically hiring local Chileans to smuggle things into this island off of the Pacific coast of Chile. And it all kind of really built up to this 1985 UFO case in Santiago, Chile, which has been, now I haven't looked into it far enough to be 100% sure, but basically to scientists it's been debunked as a French weather balloon that flew across the Atlantic and then was sighted over Santiago. But anyway, it's a really fascinating case, and it's one of those really on the cutting edge of ufology, I would say. And what I mean by that is even people in the field, you go out and you try and research Friendship Island, and short of doing what Chaz did and going down there, there is not a whole lot out there to be found. I mean, it's really scarce. And what there is, most of it tends to be in Spanish, in Peruvian Spanish. Mm -hmm. So, or sorry, Chilean Spanish. So it is yeah, a really it, interesting case. And it's one of those that it's almost like those those claims of the experiencers in the 1950s at that time. It's so cutting edge that you won't find a lot about it. It's not like, like I say, it's if you even search podcasts about Friendship Island, you'll find very, very little out there in mm -hmm. English, especially. That's kind of the, the motivation for the book. It, it really is the definitive in English version of the case because there's not there's not really any English versions of the case out there um, except for my book um, there actually isn't there's no one uh, who uh, there's a couple of researchers and journalists but again all Spanish speaking who have yeah. tried to find the island um, even a couple Spanish TV shows back in the 80s when it was in maximum popularity this this legend uh, there was a show that went there and tried to, to find it uh, find the island and these kinds of things. Uh, but it never really made it, uh, into the English speaking world un until now. Uh, and that's why I'm so, I'm so picky about my next case. Right, <laughs> I really right. want to find another one. Um, uh, and I have something like that with this, this Siberian case and I hope to find a couple more, um, to, to continue to travel and, and bring these, uh, forgotten cases because with them, you uh, you find all these new aspects, these new things that uh, you know haven't been heard, haven't been uh, known. You know, most people they peg the uh, the contact E era, right? They right. have that between the 50s and the 60s. But if you include the friendship case, interestingly enough, there's another friendship case out of Italy. Uh, yes. But if you consider this case and a few other ones, you could con the contact E movement really lasts up until the 90s. Right. Um, you know, and some well, of the interactions with the friendship continue on into the, the 2000s. So it isn't like uh, we often hear this narrative that it was the contactees and then the abductions and that it went from one to the other. But really, it, it seems the abductions kind of uh, appeared and the contacts became less, but they never really disappeared. Uh, and it was kind of vice versa as well. These abduction stories, they didn't really take off till Betty and Barney Hill had right, their right. very uh, public case. But there are plenty of encounters that are very similar to abductions in, in literature b before that. Well, I was just thinking, if we're going to talk about the contactee versus the abductions, well, that aerial schools uh, event in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very much the contactees because these entities turned up, uh, showed the children things in their minds, and basically took off. They didn't take any of the kids 
They weren't there a massive amount of time. I think from memory it was like around mm -hmm. an hour, but I mean, they weren't there for days and they really kind of did no harm. But they, uh, again, very much like that Space Brothers contactee stuff from the 1950s, they had what has been kind of more of the, the modern narrative, which is if, you know, the world is basically going to be destroyed if we don't change our ways. And you do hear about that a lot more from people who have been abducted and what they hear on board versus these school children. But again, you could very much put that in the contactee case in, in the 90s as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the, it's a, the phenomenon is so tricky. It's so yeah. bizarre. And it does seem to be um, a variety of uh, entities and interactions. And that's the thing that never really, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but not really talked about is that all of these theories could very well be true. Gravinikov could have built his bug UFO and there could have been UFOs in ancient archaeological sites and we could have shot down a UFO. We could have built our own. There could be aliens coming from uh, different planets. There could be ones coming from portals inside the hollow earth. You know, all of those could potentially exist simultaneously. It doesn't have to be a one or the other scenario. And when you do this research and you try to apply these these uh, explanations, you'll very much find that there is never one that that yeah. fits. Uh, you know, the friendship case is very much like that. The evolved folklore it gets close, but it doesn't. It's not exactly there. Uh, I go into the idea that the uh, of escaped Nazis and that this group could be yeah, I was um, going to ask you know, about that. A, a very human group. Yeah, that is definitely one of the the most interesting. Uh, parts of the book to research. Uh, and when I was in Chile, I went to a place called Villa Bavaria, yep, uh, yep. which was a former uh, Nazi compound. It was this weird rural cult, um, this doomsday Nazi cult in the middle of nowhere. And Joseph Mengele, he worked at the hospital there yep. for a while. And um, the Chilean government would send people there to, to disappear. They'd send them to the Germans and they'd never come back. Um, a few thousand people were, were sent there and never found again uh, before they finally arrested and uh, sent Paul Schaefer, the man who ran it. He was arrested for child molestation. and They finally uh, uh, busted them. But the compound is still there and it's been rebranded as like a German tourist site. Yeah. And it's very eerie. It's very spooky. And it's um, no, it's definitely a, a strange place. One of the stranger places I've investigated. Well, one of the questions, and, and look, man, that is awesome, and, and I'll tell you why. One of the questions I've been asked by people before, you know, they'll kind of say, if there's one thing you had to point at to in, in this whole kind of, let's say, alternate reality world, so whether it's UFOs, whether it's cryptids, whether it's, they'll always say to me, which ones are the, you the most sure of? And one of the ones that I personally, I have no doubt in my mind, that there were several high-ranking Nazis that escaped Europe made deals with the Allies mm -hmm. for various bits of technology or information and went on and lived their lives out in South America, among other places, in places like Bariloche and these places in Chile mm -hmm. and Uruguay and Paraguay. I've got no doubt in my mind that this happened. And, and it's the, the fact is, not only were there German ethnicity, you know, people who'd been living there for like over 100 years at that point, 
that had mm-hmm. settled there in the 1800s. Some people think that it's like, oh, they were going to live in some hut in the Andes. No, you had people like the Eichhorns, who were, were huge supporters of Hitler, spent huge amounts of money to support the Nazi party, and multi-multi-millionaires. So this is the bottom line to me. When I've had people say to me, oh, it's all a conspiracy theory. Okay, how do you explain the check that Martin Bormann signed turning up in the Argentinian and Buenos Aires uh, branch of the, uh, can't remember the bank off the top of my head, the German bank, um, the one that used to be the Reichsbank. Deutsche Bank. Bank. Yeah, Deutsche Bank. How did that check turn up in 1968 signed by Martin Bormann and cashed? Like, the man Mm -hmm. supposedly died in 1945. Well, okay, so right there is one of your smoking guns, and there have been, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Hitler, I don't know. But I know that if you look at that inner circle and you look at guys like Martin Bormann and guys like Hans Kommler and guys like Mengele, we know Mengele went to South America. So it's Mm -hmm. not a very it it doesn't take much of a leap to have proof that these other guys turn up down there. And I would say that sooner or later, as the World War Two generation has died out, some of these files are going to start to trick it trickle out from the CIA and the FBI saying that, uh, well, yeah, actually, it did happen. Yeah. No, I go into, I have a whole chapter on oh. this, the kind of the Nazi research. And um, I visited the grave of uh, Walter Roth, who was yep. an SS officer. He made the mobile gas chamber. Yeah. Um, he died in Chile, a free man. Um, I go into the stories of the the guys who uh, living in Argentina who were killed by the Israeli Mossad. Um, a couple of them were blown up by mail package bombs sent from Israel. Um <laughs> Uh, they they kidnapped one guy. They like threw a bag over his head in the street, and they um, used an illegal plane, and they uh, illegally flew him back to Israel, wow. and they tried him, and then executed him out of prison. Um, so no, they were there, and they definitely uh, had an impact. They were uh, that guy who they kidnapped. He was a school teacher for two decades in Argentina wow. before. They got up. I mean, they were community makers and, and they, it was, it's bizarre because there's, um, when I went to Walter Ralph's grave, um, there were flowers on it, uh, you know, <laughs> fresh ones. Um, and it's, uh, there's their idea, their, uh, ideologies kind of lived on in these areas too. Uh, which of course is the ultimate irony because those Nazis uh, hated being there. They hated the, the yeah. people they were around them. Yeah. They, they thought all those people were lesser than, um, but they, their ideology still kind of carried over. And it's easy to see the connections to the friendship group as well. You know, the tall blonde, um, they're very focused on science. Um, and there were quite a few Nazi U-boats that washed up in yeah. Patagonia after the war as well. Yeah, with, um, with, but with, again, with pages ripped out of their logs, by the way. <laughs> uh-huh. The, uh, one washed up and the, the deck gun had been um, crudely ripped off the top of it. And that was because there was a Brazilian ship that they had sunk a few days beforehand and they didn't want to get in trouble. So they just chucked the gun off the side of the, the U-boat. Uh, yeah, no, there was lots of um, uh, there's one Nazi U-boat that's still um uh, there in Patagonia today, it's not officially recognized, but there's a bunch of pictures of it. You can see it during certain times of year, during low tide. It, it, 
like washes up for a brief period. Wow. And officially, it, it's it's not there. It doesn't exist. Uh, but there's all kinds of people who have seen it and flown over it and taken pictures and things like that. Um, so it is. It's a bizarre. It's uh, this that that post-war those rat lines were very much real and uh, it it had quite an impact on the Americas. Well, I I covered an. Uh... It was a four-part article that I found here, and it was, of all the places, it was in, like, a local community magazine. And I've actually had this magazine, like, it's, it. I've had this magazine delivered to me, like, free, turn up in my mailbox. And I was quite surprised to read this. And basically, the author claimed that the U-196 turned up in mm -hmm. New Zealand and basically made a deal with the Allies to turn up and turn over things like uh, enriched uranium and other technologies in exchange to basically be written off as dead. Uh, and it, this wasn't like, they, they didn't claim that there were like SS officers on it and that, but it was basically mm -hmm. the crew of the U-boat just basically wanted to drop off the face of the earth. And I found it quite interesting, and I covered it over on the program. I read one segment each week for a while. And mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know who Hans Kommler was, Hans Kommler was basically the head of the Nazi Black project um he had everything under him from the v2s and everything else once the ss took control of these things and i want to say it was 42 or 43 basically hitler didn't trust the regular military to have control of it and he wanted to make sure it was under his control as did himmler well the thing about hans gommler is he's another guy depending on who you listen to he supposedly died at four different places all on the same day everywhere mm -hmm. from Czechoslovakia fighting the Russian army to dying in Berlin to so again it's just and I get the whole thing that during war things aren't always perfect and and these kind of synchronicities can happen but it's it's like to this day they've never proven that Adolf Hitler died in the bunker and when mm -hmm. people say to me oh you're full of it I tell them well just look at it they've proven that the skeletons that were dug up were it's not, not his. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they know they know that it wasn't him. The bones that they have that they thought were him were definitely not his. Yeah. Um, so, it's no, it's definitely interesting. There's a lot of stories in South America. Um, you brought up uh, Bolorche in uh, Argentina. Uh, a lot of a lot of places where they, they believe Hitler lived or was hiding out. Um, Villa Bavaria itself was yeah. maybe one of the locations. Um, the idea that he kind of toured around and was always kept moving. That there's an idea that he spent some time there, just like Mengele did. That was his strategy. He kept moving so that they could never really pin him down. Um, and again, he also died a free man. Um, so we we know a bunch of them did it, and they did it successfully. Um, we just never really know the extent. Um, and of course, it's really intriguing when it comes to the friendship case, but. Just like we've been discussing, it doesn't quite match up perfectly because again, the friendship case is in the eighties, right. and uh, the the group is always late twenties, early thirties to mid thirties, never older, never younger. There's right. no kids or elderly on the island. You know, it's not like a colony. Uh, even yeah. when I went to the the now defunct villa, you know, uh, Colonia Dignidad, Villa Bavaria. There were still older people and middle-aged people and, you know, it's a community. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, those aspects aren't there when it comes to the friendship case. You know, it takes place well after World War II as well. Um, so it's, it's always something that is, uh, intriguing and it's something I'm always thinking about.
and if you uh, want to get some of those crazy stories and, and get into on that research, um, please check out my book. It's uh, Paranormal Expeditions, Hunt for the Friendship, available on Amazon. Well, you, you've already got one sale, man, because there's no way that I can't go and read the book now, everything we've talked about. And uh, yeah, look, I mean, there's some of those things when I was in my early 20s and when I lived in Southern California, as you can imagine, I mean, California is a big melting pot of people from all over mm -hmm. the world. And I knew a guy there actually who was an ex-SS officer and he didn't want to talk about it a lot, as you can imagine. But as yeah. he learned that I was a student of history, and again, I, I don't excuse, I've said it on the program many times, I don't think that I'm some Nazi file that's in love with the, the SS and all of that, but I am very much interested in the history of the world. And I mean, you can't write the history of the 20th century without talking about what went on in Germany. And when he realized that I wasn't going to, prod him for things that he didn't want to talk about he opened up and i know that he was an ss officer because he had the tattoo and he showed it to me and mm. he got to he he was a colonel in the ss and he told me that he talked to after the war and he knew um he knew just trying to pick uh he knew scorzani and he knew many other people now he said he didn't know what went on as far as people going to uh, South America or other places, he only knew rumors. So he never had mm -hmm. it confirmed to him. But he said that Otto Scorzani told me because Scorzani moved to Spain and that's where he went after the war because he mm -hmm. wanted to keep a fairly low profile. Well, Scorzani told him one-on-one -on -one that he had been told don't go to South America because you're going to raise too much of a high profile if you turn up down there because you're too well-known. And he was basically told, don't go to Argentina and don't go, you know, to South America, basically. Mm -hmm. Go wherever they already else have too many big hitters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he didn't need to hide because I think he served five years after the war. He did his time mm -hmm. and he was he was a free man, for lack of a better term. He'd already served his time. But this guy basically told me that Scorzani was told by people in De Spinner, which was it's the spider in English. But De Spinner mm -hmm. is basically what the Germans called the quote-unquote Odessa file. They didn't call it Odessa. They called it De Spinner. And he, he said that Scorzani was basically told, don't don't go to South America. We don't need you here. You're like a rock star. You're just going to raise everybody's uh, ire if you turn up down there. But, mm -hmm. but this guy told me he had no doubt that a lot of these guys escaped. He said the money was definitely there. The funds were there. He, he was, it was offered for him to go on the run at the end of the war, this colonel. And he basically said, mm -hmm. no, he was just going to face justice as long as he ended up on the Western Allied side of the line. He said he yeah. had no interest <laughs> in, in going and dealing with the Russians. But he mm -hmm. went through it. He got his interrogation. He did his two or three years in a prison camp, and then that was it. But he said he had close friends that he grew up with that were in the SS that followed the rat line through Italy and then got on ships and went wherever else. But he said he never heard, maybe he did, but he told me he never heard from them after that, after the end mm -hmm. of the war. But he basically said the stories of the Nazi gold and the treasure and that, he goes, although overblown, they were very much true. He goes, guys were, especially guys that were officers, were given uh, money to basically be able to form a new life if they wanted to. And back then, I mean, it wasn't like it is now. You could basically turn up in a country and they would say, well, where are your papers? Oh, I lost them. I'm a refugee. 
been fleeing from yeah. Germany or whatever, and they just give you new papers. And that's what mm-hmm. that's what the Catholic uh, Church did for a lot of them. But yeah, I, I've got no doubt that those things went on. And it is interesting as you, you, you think about your life and then you think about some of the people you've run into and you just go, man, I wish I would have gotten more details from that person at the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could talk to that B guy again in Morocco. <laughs> yeah. I have yeah. so many questions. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, definitely. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that guy, this this colonel, I can't even, I think his name, I think his first name was Kurt, uh, or at least that's what he went by. But look, he, he had some things left. He didn't have his uniform or anything, but he had his, he had his dress dagger. And all I'm saying is it wasn't some guy just telling me stories. And mm-hmm. again, I know enough about the war. I know enough about history to know what the 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 way that the tattoos the uh script they used and everything else and this guy definitely still had his tattoo and he said he did things he wasn't proud of he said but he was a young man during the war and he wasn't he said to him he believed early on the whole story that you're defending the country and everything else and then he said when things start happening like you you're watching people shoot women and children you do start asking yourself well what the hell are we really doing and he was in Russia he saw a lot of things that went on. And if I would ask him about something, like I would say to him, what really went on here or there, if he didn't want to talk about it, he'd just say, look, I really don't want to talk about it. And I didn't push him anymore. But yeah, he told me some really interesting things. And, and he said that regardless of what some people tell us, he goes, they were never close to winning the war. And they <laughs> really knew it. Anybody who knew what was going on in Germany, they didn't have the the materials. They didn't have the fuel and everything else to win the war. Yeah. And the idea was basically that Russia was just going to cave a lot faster than they did. And what they hoped was that if Russia collapsed, then England would finally say, OK, well, let's talk about a negotiated peace. But but anyway, mm-hmm. um, the whole thing, the South American tie in with the Nazis, uh, obviously, we've all heard rumors of the Antarctic bases and everything else. I just do find it fascinating that it is kind of the story that doesn't die like to this day. Mm-hmm. There are still people I mean. What was that movie uh, that came out uh, with Nazis on the moon? I can't remember it off the top of my head. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, that was a good one. I don't yeah. remember either. Uh, but but you know what I'm saying? It's like it, it's just it's like and and I guess when you've got the bad guys dressed all in black with um, uniforms designed by Hugo Boss, no less, they're going to set mm-hmm. an impression that people go, <laughs> yeah, well, these 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 guys um, are hard to forget, but. Uh, yeah, Iron they were pretty Skies, villainous looking. Yeah, <laughs> Iron Skies, that was the movie. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, Chaz, look, man, um, I'm happy to hang around. I don't want to keep you all night. I know it must be getting pretty late there. Oh, well, yeah, I've actually got to get, get some dinner now. Yeah, fair, fair, fair <laughs> enough. But this was a blast. I mean, this is awesome. I could go on for, for hours talking about this stuff. It was uh, uh, it, you're, uh, you're a great conversation partner for it because it's we're we're really into the the deep cuts and the weird stuff and yeah, no, every, this was a blast. Thanks for having me on. Everybody's trying to take notes. Going, hold on, what were they talking about again? Let me write this down. <laughs> you know? No, no, look, it's the same. So why don't you plug your website and your book again? Uh, just give you another chance to make sure everybody's and I'll make sure that there's link in the show notes. But uh, make sure that you 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 get it out there for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my website is chazofthedead.com. You can find all of my articles and podcast interviews and all that kind of stuff there. Um, you can find me on social media at Chaz of the Dead, um, Instagram and Twitter. And the book is Paranormal Expeditions Hunt for the Friendship. Uh, if you love weird stories and histories and paranormal investigations, um, and that, that obscure stuff that no one's covering, 
uh, then it's the book for you. Uh, go check it out. It's available on Amazon. Thanks, man. And I'll definitely have you back on. Um, hopefully sooner rather than later. i got to get some of this editing out of the way, like I say. And then, uh, uh, yeah, look, it, it's one of those things. Every time I have someone like yourself on, it's just the time flies. And you're like, wow, has it really been two and a half hours? So. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've got a good, we could do a two-parter with this one. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I do, man. Um, I've had two and three-hour ones, and, and it's one of those things. If the subject matter uh, deems that it takes five hours, it takes five hours, you know? So, um, yeah, man, absolutely. Look, yeah, your, your wealth of knowledge in a lot of those areas that I've always been fascinated by, but I don't necessarily, I've never had boots on the ground. Look, man, it's it's amazing, and, and I'll, I'll be happy to have you back anytime. Yeah, I'd love to be back and uh, do another uh, two and a half hours. This was a, a, a blast, fun conversation, and uh, I love getting into the the theory and the the crazy stories. This was this was great. Yeah, man, it it is. It's awesome, and I'll make sure I let you know when it comes out. Um, it might get moved a little bit further up the queue because it's it's been an awesome conversation, and I've really enjoyed it. Oh, cool, good. I'll make sure to plug it on all my stuff when it's out there. And uh, yeah, thanks again, John. This was this was cool. Now, thanks, Chaz. Take care and have a good night, and I'll talk to you soon. Yep. You have a good morning. Peace. Thanks, man.